electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead. Did today's CPI number cement the end of the rate hike cycle? And did it actually put cuts further up on the table? Did it also clear the way for a year-end rally? We seem to be getting one today. Our market guest says yes to all of this, that it's not too late to get in. He's eyeing one trade at a specific time to make it. He tells us which one and when to pull the trigger. Plus, investing overseas, veteran EM investor Mark Mobius sees a lot of opportunity right now, just not in China. He's here with what part of the world he is bullish on. And diet drugs have been weighing down the food trade, but Bernstein sees opportunity and 20% upside for one name. It's a counterintuitive call. We'll see if they can convince me. The analyst who made it is here to make her case. Let's start with the rally, though, fueled by that softer CPI report. All the major averages up sharply today. You can see the Dow up 1.4%. 582 are the highs. We're about 100 points off that right now. The S&P up 1.9. The Nasdaq up 2.3%. And check out the small caps. If you think the Nasdaq's gain is impressive, the Russell 2000 is up twice that much on pace for its best day in over a year. Still a big laggard year to date, but it's up 4.6% today. The yield on the 10-year, meanwhile, reversing to its lowest level, brings us back to about September. Uh, where's the 10-year? 4.469, so a bit off session lows. Watch the two-year, too. It's down to 4.84. And let's dig a little further now into that cooler-than-expected inflation print. Consumer prices unchanged from the month prior, up 3.2% from a year ago. Core inflation up 4%, but that was actually the smallest increase in more than two years. Does this firmly move the Fed to the sidelines? For more on that, let's bring in UBS Global Wealth Management Chief Economist Paul Donovan and CNBC's very own Steve Leisman. Welcome to both of you. And Paul, I'll start with you. And I suppose that's the question to ask, although, um, as some are pointing out, at this point, if inflation's falling and they don't start cutting, they're uh, tightening policy further. Well, to be honest, we've got to remember that they're tightening quantitative policy and they're sort of tightening regulatory policy. Certainly, you know, the willingness to supply credit has tightened and we're getting rising real rates. So you've got a, you've got the trifecta. All three pillars of central bank policy are pointing to tighten. Now, I don't think the Fed is going to ease this year. Frankly, personally, I think the Fed has over-tightened. But I don't think they're going to be easing until next year. They're going to want to see a bit more of a decline in inflation, which will come. And then I think what the Fed is going to do is try and keep real rates steady so they'll match the pace of decline in inflation next year. That's really interesting that you think they've already over-tightened. That's a, not the consensus view at all. A lot of people think they're still behind uh, you know, or that the economy has been surprisingly resilient. What tells you they've done too much already? Well, the thing is, to to quote the Nobel laureate Leontief, you've got to get your hands dirty with the details of the data. And when we start burrowing beneath the surface of, of headline inflation and core inflation in the United States, what do we find? We find the US doesn't really have an inflation problem. It's got a bit of a Florida problem. Florida has got quite high inflation, but lots of other cities, inflation is actually really quite low. If you look across the metropolitan inflation numbers, lots of places have got quite low inflation. Miami is still having a bit of a problem. Middle class homeowners, if you you own your own home, 
you do not pay owner's equivalent rent. You are not experiencing a 6.8% increase year over year in your cost of mortgages. You are actually facing an inflation rate that is sub 2%. And that's been the case for some time. So when we look in the detail, when we look at these different cities, New York, you know, uh, San Francisco, etc., when we look at the middle income families, no evidence of inflation stickiness, plenty of evidence that inflation is doing what it was always going to do, slowing down in the face of a relentless tightening cycle from the Fed. Steve? Um, Paul Donovan makes an awful lot of sense. The only trouble with Paul's argument is that the Fed is going to wait until these realities come into the actual indices. I don't believe it's going to act uh, it's going to be proactive in terms of running ahead of what the data show. We've been waiting for two things. We've been waiting for lo lower wages to work their way into lower service inflation and waiting for the what, what Paul is talking about, about housing, to work its way into the housing data. That began, I think, in earnest this month. And, and I just agree with Paul. The Fed's going to want to see a lot more of this, especially because, you know, as Powell just said, they were burned before by a head fake. Um, when it came to inflation last year and, and earlier this year as well. So it's going to watch to make sure that these number, this, these gains are not revised away. Um, uh, Goolsby just talked about some concern about external shocks coming to the economy. So it's going to be very cautious. Um, the more interesting thing to me, Paul, if you don't mind, is you have 275 basis points of cuts built in for next year. Do I have that right? Wow. Because um, even the market, which is more ambitious than the Fed itself by a long way, uh, has just 100 built in. I don't know if you could walk us through how you get to 275 next year. Uh, so we don't actually have that, I'm afraid. That's uh, my colleagues in the investment bank, which is an independent research unit. Uh, so for us, we're looking okay. for three hikes uh, around the course of next year. And that's essentially matching the decline in inflation. So as we see inflation coming down, and I agree with you, we've got to see the fall in the numbers. Now, personally, as an economist, I think that you know, an, an economic-run central bank should be preempting this sort of stuff. But that's not what we've got. We've got a reactive central bank, not a preemptive central bank. We don't have a medium-term policy framework. We've got data dependency. Steve? I'm not in favour, but, you know, with my yeah. accent, they're never going to let me run the Fed. So I'm stuck <laughs> saying, what is Powell going to do? And what Powell is going to do, I think, I is with a lag, follow the decline in inflation. I think you're quite right. He's going to want to see that certainty of inflation coming down, and then he'll respond the following quarter by you know, cutting the equivalent of the drop in inflation. The, the trouble with that, Paul, I think you'll acknowledge, is that that puts the Fed behind the case, and it also creates the danger that they get the recession that they're trying to avoid in the soft landing. I agree with you, Paul. I'm sort of in the camp from a central bank, and nobody will ever put me on the, the central bank uh, uh, either, um, is that you pick a forecast and go with it. I think there was an argument that if the Fed was not sufficiently restrictive, it should have raised rates to the point where it was sufficiently restrictive and said, this is our forecast and we're going with it and ended up being right or wrong based on that. Instead of sitting here where we are essentially right now, which is in this limbo of is the Fed sufficiently restricted or not? Everybody's decided that it is. 
I, by the way, think that the market's gone a little bit overboard. And I think we're learning today, Kelly, that the market was really worried about this report with the par partially the relief it's getting today. Uh, I, I didn't realize that the market was so hung up on this inflation report today. Paul, let me ask you one more. And, and this is I'm, like I could go eight more minutes, which we don't have. But but I do want to ask you the following question. When you talk about the Fed needing to be a little bit more proactive and not reactive, what would you have them go off of right now? Because I could give you at least three different labor market indicators that tell you we might be in or near recession. Uh, but they don't typically like to do anything other than the obvious stuff, like Steve said, when we get negative payrolls and, and so forth. What would be the indicators that tell you there's uh, potentially trouble out there and how should they react? So this is what I always tell our clients. You cannot look at one or two indicators. You cannot say, you know, what is your favorite indicator? We are in an environment where the quality of economic data has got substantially less. You know, over in the United Kingdom, you know, His Majesty's Office for National Statistics has said, you know what, we're not just, we, we just don't believe our own numbers anymore on the labor market. It came out and said that a couple of months ago. So I think it is very, very dangerous to, to say, right, we're gonna wait for payrolls. Payrolls is done on a survey where 55% of companies refuse to say what their payrolls are. So what you have got to do is look at a broad range of indicators and have a framework. Give me like clearly four or five of them in, in the dwindling moments we have. What would be the, the indicators you think they should be looking at right now? So I think you've got to look at the employment report. I think you've also got to look at new big data surveys, online job surveys. Look at what's actually happening with wage growth. Look at where there are strains emerging in credit card data. This all gives you a very holistic picture of what's going on. Quick last word, Steve. Um, there's a lot of big data out there. The Fed is incorporating some of it. It needs to probably incorporate more of it. I actually think ADP has been pointing the way to much lower uh, 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 employment gains, as well as our new CNBC NRF retail monitor, which shows that uh, consumer spending has been weaker. And it points me to tomorrow uh, where the retail sales report comes out. Again, that's survey data, and we're going to have to run on that. I'm glad that of all weeks, this was the week that you have more of that high-frequency data. And it has been a little bit weaker than some of the top-level ones. Great stuff, guys. Thank you. Really appreciate right. it. Paul Donovan of okay. UBS. I want to talk to your investment bank colleagues, by the way, Paul, with the three points of cuts next year. That, Steve and I, that's there up next. Paul Donovan of UBS and Steve Leisman. We got some breaking news on mortgage rates. The plunge in the 10-year yield today is pushing mortgage rates down sharply. Diana Olick has the details. Diana? Well, Kelly, the average rate on the 30-year fix dropped 18 basis points this morning to 7.4% even, according to Mortgage News Daily. Mortgage rates follow loosely the yield on the 10-year Treasury. Now, rates have been on a wild ride the last few months. The 30-year jumped over 8% in mid-October and then turned sharply lower the week before last on that one-two punch of the Fed pausing its rate increases and the monthly jobs report coming in on the low side. While rates have moved within a one percentage point range, it still means a lot to potential home buyers who are right on the edge of not only being able to afford a home, but being able to qualify for a mortgage in this higher rate range. Just to compare the difference between 7% rate and 8% on the 30-year, if you were buying a $400,000 home with 20% down on the mortgage, the difference in that monthly payment is $220. But if you compare 8% to 3%, which we had just two years ago, that difference is over $1,000. So this is real money out in a very pricey market anyway, Kelly. 
7.4%. That is something. Uh, Diana, thank you very much. We appreciate our Diana Olick. Let's move to the markets now. As Speaking of big reactions, we have a monster rally off of that softer CPI with a lot of the beaten down stocks up sharply today. Names like Enphase and even Paramount. Meanwhile, the semi-ETF at a new all-time high today. So too is the broader tech ETF, the XLK. My next guest is buying into the momentum trade and has been since August after he forecasted the S&P would near 5,000. He still expects this bullish trend to continue through year-end without much pullback in sight. Andrew Slimman is back with us. He's Senior Portfolio Manager at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. Andrew, welcome. And I wanted to play up the bearishness that our previous guest at UBS had about the economy so that you can come in and explain um, how long these two things can exist side by side. Stocks rallying on this relief about the Fed and inflation, but still with uh, larger concerns about the cycle persisting. Sure. Well, the key thing here, Kelly, is that the CPI print has pushed rates lower. And at 446 on the 10-year, that will mean the stock market can trade at a higher multiple. Uh, And combine that with the fact that earnings have come through. And as we roll into next year, we're going to start next year with an earnings consensus S&P estimate of close to 250. Uh, that's why the market's rallying. It's the lower rates where bonds are less of a competitor to stocks, and that pushes the valuation higher. Cut one quote from uh, our Robert Hung's note and a lot of LSEG data as we move through earnings season, where they say the record earnings we were expecting in Q4, we got them in Q3. That's a good thing. The problem is that for six weeks straight, Q4 earnings growth expectations have been revised down by about five points, so a pretty significant way. And we don't now expect, we expect declines in Q4, even in Q1, so we don't get back to where we were in Q3 until the second quarter of next year. Is that supportive enough uh, for stocks? I think so, because even with modestly lower earnings for next year, we're still looking at uh, you know 11% earnings growth coming off a flat year. So we're inflecting, and that was part of, that was a key, one of my key reasons why I felt we'd have a fourth quarter rally is the market starts to recognize after a flat year-over-year earnings year, we're going to have inflecting to positive earnings growth next year. Uh, and I still think that's that's the case. Companies are not guiding lower for next year. And so that's that's very, very positive for, for earnings recovery. And that's that is a key reason why, you know, I, I, again, I felt that we'd have a fourth quarter rally. Yeah. And, and how much does your conviction extend beyond that? Well, I mean, the, the, what I what I think when the dust settles on this year next, this year is going to be for the S and P a very good year, and I suspect next year will be a positive year, but it won't be nearly as good because the key difference is we started this year, Kelly, and we talked about this before with so many bears. Most strategists were negative going into this year. Uh, that this the the boat was it was all everyone was on one side of the boat very bearish and I suspect as we begin next year the level of enthusiasm will be higher for stocks so the path will be a little tougher I still think it'll be a good year but it won't be nearly as good as this year I certainly felt like kind of a a dope a few year, weeks ago when the market was at 4,100, but I feel a, a little bit more redeemed today. Yeah, and the bears, by the way, have been in the same boat at different junctures. And that, that actually brings me to my next question, which is we still haven't taken out the highs from the end of 2021 for the S&P, which was around 47, 4,800, correct me if I'm wrong. What does that tell you that for the last two years now, basically, we've gone nowhere? 
Well, a friend of mine uses a great analogy, which is it's like a beach ball held underwater. Hmm. Eventually, it breaks to the upside. And I think this is a very important metric to understand, Kelly, because when I talk to clients and advisors, they still say to me, my clients are not positive on stocks because we're still, they're still below where they were two years ago in terms of their total asset value. So I don't think optimism actually is going to get ebullient until we break above that, uh, that, that high. But the point of this is two years of staying low, the market's not going to break to the, to the downside. Eventually, it will break to the upside. That's just the way it's, it happens. And you think it's going to be MAG7 leading the way once again? Well, certainly this year, I think you're getting a big bounce today in some of the stocks that have uh, underperformed. But typically at this time of the year, it's the momentum stocks. And certainly as we get into the second half of December, yes, mutual funds tax loss sell in October, but individuals tax loss sell in December. And they're going to be selling. That's why uh, the losers of the year continue to be the losers uh, in December. So I think the Magnificent Seven, you know, they have great fundamentals. I dismiss the, the, the analogy to 1999 because they're not trading at nearly the valuation and they're beating numbers. So I think that is an area to focus on, but I would use it with a combination of some of the value names that are reporting very, very good numbers. The area that we have avoided all year, which was just highlighted uh, uh, previously on the show, is the defensive stocks. Because true to you know human nature, after the bear market of last year, investors piled into defensive stocks and they got expensive, and that's being unwound that now. So I still think healthcare, staples, utilities, these are the areas to avoid. Those are the areas to avoid. Andrew, looking at tech, looking even at a couple of industrial financial plays, staying bullish into year end. Thanks for joining us to make your case today. Thanks, Kelly. Andrew Sliman with Morgan Stanley. Coming up, the K-Web China Internet ETF is having a muted day amid this strong rally. It's only up about 1%. And veteran emerging markets investor Mark Mobius will join us with why he's not buying into Chinese stocks here and where he sees a better bet. Plus, three big retail names on deck to report tomorrow morning before the bell, featuring an off-price name, a big box store, and an e-commerce giant. We'll get you the action, the story, and the trade on TJX, Target, and JD.com. As we head to break, let's get a quick glance across the markets with the Dow up 472 points today, helped by lower rates. Uh, the, S- the Nasdaq leading the way of the major averages up more than 2%, and the small cap Russell's up 4.5%. We're back after this. that that's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like how about that that's a premium banging olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a biosonic sound experience that that's our legacy you ready to be a part of it unlock the energy of the all-electric cdx type s order now at acura.com What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. 
Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Presidents Biden and Xi Jinping are set to meet on the sidelines of the Asia-Pacific Economic Conference tomorrow. It'll be President Xi's first time in the U.S. in six years, and it comes at a time when relations are at their tensest point in five decades. So could tomorrow's summit mark the beginning of a more normalized relationship between our two countries or not? Eamon Javers is in San Francisco ahead of this highly anticipated meeting. Eamon, with uh, why it's taking place on the West Coast and why now? Yeah, Kelly, that's right. Uh, look, President Biden is in the air on his way here to San Francisco now, but he stopped to talk briefly to reporters in D.C., and he gave a sense of how he would define a success in his upcoming meeting with China's Xi Jinping. Here's what he said. To get back on a normal course of corresponding, being able to pick up the phone and talk to one another if there's a crisis, being able to make sure our military still have contact with one another. We can't take, as I told you, we're not trying to decouple from China, but we're, what we're trying to do is change the relationship for the better. And Kelly, you could hear Biden there echoing foreign policy experts and keeping expectations for this session relatively low. The easiest item on the agenda is expected to be the resumption of those direct military-to-military -military talks that were suspended after then-Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan in 2022. That's seen as one way of stopping a potential accidental conflict in the air or on the sea. But a lot of this visit will be about at least making sure the relationship doesn't get any worse, with U.S. officials repeating the mantra this week that competition with China does not have to mean confrontation between the two countries. Kelly, back over to you. Interesting to hear him define those two goals, uh, you know, top level uh, officials and then the military speaking with one another. Eamon, thank you. For now, yeah. we appreciate our Eamon Javers. Despite the highly anticipated meeting between Biden and Xi, my next guest says the equity market in China doesn't look good right now due to rising political risk. And instead of investing there, he's finding better opportunities elsewhere. Joining me now is Mark Mobius, president of Mobius Investment Consulting. Mark, it's good to have you here. So uh, not, not much enthusiasm. You still think there's a lot of political risk? Uh, yeah, and you can see that in the index. If you look at the China index, it hasn't moved. Uh, look at Tencent, Alibaba, any of these stocks have not really moved at all in anticipation of something happening, something good happening of the meeting. Uh, there's so many issues between the two countries. It's not only uh, Taiwan, it's the South China Sea, it's the fentanyl that's being shipped from China. It's, it's so many issues that are negative. So I don't see much happening. And of course, the U.S. is very concerned about uh, having the militaries communicate with each other. But as you know, there's a lot of uh, strife now taking place within the military in China. Xi Jinping has made a number of very critical changes in the rocket forces. So putting this all together, uh, it does not look very good. Uh, and I, what I think is the way to get into China, if you want to be in China, is through Taiwan. Oddly enough, even though you may fear there's going to be some kind of a, an invasion of Taiwan, because Taiwan and China are shipping between each other lots of goods and services. And if you go into Taiwan, you can then get into China in an indirect way. But in other words, you'd be bullish both on Taiwanese investments and also those 
which may be most of them, that are heavily geared towards China. So it's not that you're bearish on China's economy. It's just you're a little concerned about investing directly there. Exactly. Uh, of course, the economy is not doing very well in China, but uh, the government is putting an incredible amount of effort to upgrade the technology, particularly the semiconductor technology. And that's the reason why they need Taiwan, because as you know, Taiwan is the center of high-end uh, semiconductor production in the world. So that's where the emphasis will be. Of course, the general economy in China is not doing very well, but the tech sector will be a big focus for the government and a lot of resources will go into that sector. Does the Chinese reliance on Taiwan make an invasion or a takeover there at some point more or less likely for you than it seems to be for a lot of analysts? I think less likely. Uh, uh, what China wants is a, a peaceful takeover so that they can take advantage of all the technology that you have in Taiwan. So I just don't see a hot war taking place. Now, of course, accidents can happen, but I just don't see that happening in the near future, at least. Even a blockade? Even a blockade, because there's so much trade going on between Taiwan and China. It wouldn't make sense for either of them to have a blockade of some sort. Interesting. The place that I kind of tease that you're quite bullish on is India. And it's a country that with each passing year, people seem to have higher and higher hopes and expectations for. Can it meet those? I think so. I'm talking to you today from Bangalore. I've been to five cities in India in the last two weeks. And uh, you can feel the incredible excitement and incredible potential for growth here. Infrastructure needs a lot of work. And they're building roads, railroads. They're doing a lot of upgrading in the country. And of course, the economic growth rate is very high, one of the highest in the world. So there's still great opportunities. Of course, and the stock market has done very well and has performed as well as the U.S. market. As a matter of fact, in some cases, outperformed the U.S. market. But uh, you can see incredible potential here. And if, as you know, companies like Infosys, ICICI and others, but we particularly like the uh, medium-sized companies because the potential growth in those companies is very good. Real quick follow-up to that. After their latest spat with Canada, The Economist was warning that maybe people shouldn't take it for granted that India will be a kind of a, a an easy player to enter the existing world order. And perhaps could there be political risk there uh, in the years to come as much as there is in China right now? Oh, there's no question there will be political risk because, you know, it's a, it's a nation of separate states. I mean, you go from one state to another and you have a different language. The good news is that the common language is English and Hindi. Generally speaking, the people around the country can speak those too. But the individual states are very powerful and have their own cultures. And of course, one of the great accomplishments of Modi has been able to get these states together to talk and to cooperate more and more. So uh, there's no question there'll be political problems, just like in the US, as you know, you have different states uh, contending and competing with each other, and you have the same thing in uh, India. Yeah, and just celebrating Diwali. Is now <laughs> more and more schools in my neck of the woods are celebrating it as well. Mark, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Mark Mobius with Mobius Investment Consulting. Coming up, it's the deal of the day. Online shopping getting social ahead of the holiday season with Amazon and Snap teaming up to take on TikTok and its share of teen wallets. We've got the details ahead in Tech Check. 
As we head to break, here's a look at the sector leaders today with all the rate-sensitive groups, real estate and utilities leading the gains and near the top today. We're back after this. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric CDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. Welcome back to the exchange. Markets are rallying right now with the Dow up almost 500 points. That's a one and a half percent gain, and it's the laggard today. As you can see, these are uh, in what is it called? Ascending order, descending order. Yeah, S&P is up 2% today. NASDAQ is up 2.3%. And the Russell up 4.8%. Now, as you might discern from this, regional banks are benefiting from the relief in rates. The KRE ETF having its best day since January of 2021. It's up 7.5% nearly. Western Alliance up 10%. Same for Valley National. Truist up 6% as well. And it's not just the regionals. The KBE Bank ETF is having its best day in nearly three years right now. B of A, its best day of the year with a 5% pop. And the chip makers, as you can see there, also rallying. The SMH ETF hitting an all-time high today. It's up 3% to just over 160 right now. OLED, Analog Devices, QCOM, those are all some of the names leading the way. Meantime, hedge fund manager Michael Burry just revealed a new bet using options against chip stocks. His firm, Scion Asset Management, establishing a put position against 100,000 shares of the iShares Semi Sox ETF. That likely equates to 1,000 put contracts. His fund is up 45% this year with NVIDIA, AMD, and Broadcom among its biggest holdings. For more, you can head over to cnbc.com pro. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Hi, Tyler. Kelly, hello. The uh, march for Israel is underway in Washington, D.C. Tens of thousands of demonstrators gathering at the National Mall to show support for Israel and against anti-Semitism. Family members of hostages showed up to be the voice of those taken by Hamas. Organizers for the event said they are calling for the return of the hostages and for Israel's right to remain free from violence. President Biden, meantime, on his way to San Francisco this afternoon for the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit, APEC. He is expected to meet with Chinese President Xi Jinping to discuss bettering communication and managing competition as the two work to ease tensions between their countries. This will be the first face-to-face meeting between the two leaders in a year. And YouTube is cracking down on AI-generated music. The platform will require users to label realistic AI content when uploading videos, especially about topics like elections and conflicts. The labels will appear in descriptions and on top of videos. Failure to label a video could result in the video being taken down or demonetization. Whatever that means, Kelly, back to you. Tyler, thanks. I'll see you soon. Coming up, we are firmly into the retail portion of earnings season with some marquee names set to report in the morning. We'll look ahead to TJX, JD.com, and Target's results. That's next in Earnings Exchange. Welcome back. Home Depot posting a beat and management says inflation has abated. That stock's surging 6% today. Does it bode well for the rest of retail earnings season? Let's look ahead to Target, JD.com, and TJX. 
in today's earnings exchange. Here with our trades is Gina Sanchez, Lido Advisors Chief Market Strategist and a CNBC contributor. Good to see you, Gina. Let's start with Target. Shares down 25% this year. It's been a tough stretch. Uh, they revised guidance lower amid disappointing sales last quarter. CEO warned about continued near-term top-line challenges. Analysts are also concerned about demand and the continuing theft problem, which the company blamed for those nine recent store closures. Uh, stocks up 4% today, though. Is it turning a corner? Are you a buyer here? Well, so this is a tough one because you're right. The outlook for Target is not great. They are not projecting great numbers and they have had trouble with uh, traffic into stores and just top line revenue. However, the kind of finally seeing some some relief in inflation and seeing some relief in the supply chain has allowed them to finally build up profitability. So you've actually seen operating margins finally starting to expand. Um, so the, the company itself is becoming more and more profitable despite the fact that it's fighting these pretty tough headwinds. Um, the one thing about it is it is very cheap right now. It is very attractive relative to the rest of the beaten down sector. Um, so you know if you're legging into this, it is on valuation. Now, actually, I don't know if we can show the price to earnings multiple. Do you know it off the top of your head? Yeah, it's, it's, gosh, it's down about um, nine. Wow, <laughs> is it? Single low. digits. Okay. Yeah. So Target, again, you say this would be a valuation by, really a value trade almost more than anything. Uh, still Precisely. down about 14% the past three months. Yeah, there's our, we're yeah. giving it about a 13, but again, it kind of depends on what estimates you're using. Let's move along to, yeah, yeah let's go to JD.com. Uh, those shares are down also 50% this year. The recovery in China, huge headwind, continues to disappoint. Mizuho warns that their revenues could be pressured as they undergo a price matching and inventory revamp, uh, but more promotions are expected to entice some buyers back. Uh, yeah, so we've got a Chinese story, a uh, retail story here stuck in the middle of the rest of earnings season, Gina. And uh, why would you, who would want us to put their necks out here, do you think? So here you have to believe that China itself is turning a corner. And, you know, GDP has obviously been really shaky. There are, you know, there, there you can make a strong argument that we're starting to see some stabilization. Um, in the GDP numbers, and you're starting to see some support in actual uh, retail sales in China, and possibly some green shoots in the property sector, which is really the, the kind of area of China that, it, that still represents the greatest risk. Um, and, and so if you believe all that, then you have to believe that the long-awaited China reopening and consumption story should start to play out. Now, the outlook for JD from JD themselves is still not very positive yet. And so really, you're listening to hear what that outlook is um, at the, you know, at the e-commerce uh, company level. Yeah. Right I now, um, if you believe that you're that you're legging into a China reopening, this is a play that should work. Amazing to see the shares are only up 40 percent since their IPO nine years ago. Quick question on this one and kind of on all of them, Gina. Do you think the uh, Shein, Timu, uh, the rise of those apps, is that having an impact? Well, I think right now a lot of things are having a, a lot of impact. You're saying in the Chinese market specifically or yeah. just broadly? Okay. Uh, yeah, no, I was saying just broadly speaking. Um, do you know, are they are they having an impact in China as well? It's pretty obvious they're having an impact here. Yeah, I, it's, it's hard to say right now. Right now, what's driving the market really isn't competition. What's driving the market is just simply purse tightening across the consumer sector and the retail sector. All right, which brings us to TJX, owner of TJ Maxx Home Goods. Uh, they're back near their September all-time high. This one has been the real outperformer of the group. Huge market cap, too. We're talking about $100 billion. Uh, that's thanks in part to its lower prices. 
According to City, perhaps it's also in part to winning some share from bankrupt Bed Bath & Beyond as they have experienced accelerating traffic at Home Goods in particular. Is this kind of the, who was it, uh, Mike Mayo, the Goliath, stick with Goliath, winner take all kind of thing? You stick with Goliath in the retail space here? You know, so this one is expensive, but worth it. Look, th this is a store that everybody loves. When, when times are tough, people like value. And that's the difference between TJX and Target is that at TJX, you're going into TJ Maxx, you're going into Marshalls, and Home Goods, you're absolutely spot on that they are taking market share from, from Bed Bath & Beyond. The traffic numbers on all of these stores has been very positive and expected to continue to be positive, despite the fact that the overall outlook um, for Cons, you know, consumption over the next quarter is still expected to continue to decline. This is a company that continues to to get more than its fair share um, of 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 traffic, and you know the the valuation reflects it. I mean, it's over thirty times uh, forward earnings. So you know, this is one that you're paying for. However, the outlook is still bright. It's still expected to have positive growth next year. All That's right, a so big deal. It is, and I'm sensing some cautious optimism on your part into the morning. We'll see how it goes. Gina, thank you so much. Gina Sanchez with Lido Advisors. Coming up, Amazon is teaming up with yet another social media company as it tries to get back in front of young shoppers. Those details and whether it can also help legacy social media names deal with their ad woes. That's next. Welcome back. Snap is the latest social media outlet to team up with Amazon. The partnership will allow users to buy Amazon's products within the Snap app. Deirdre Bosa joins us with more in today's Tech Check. It's a big deal, Deirdre. It is kind of because, as you said, Kelly, this is just the latest. It's had partnerships with Meta and even Shopify. So, you know, really, this is Amazon powering social media shopping, which is it's becoming more and more important because Companies like TikTok are really kind of pioneering the way. Just Western companies hasn't been as successful in getting people to shop through their social media platforms as TikTok is becoming. So by partnering with Meta and Snap, Amazon lets you, or the partnership allows users to buy products on Amazon without even leaving the app. On the surface, it does feel counterintuitive because these are all advertisers. We know that Amazon has been building its advertising business very quickly, but different propositions here. You go to a Facebook or an Instagram or a Snap to discover products, right? They're sort of fed to you through social media, whereas Amazon's advertising proposition is more intent-based. So they benefit in different ways. And remember, too, Kelly, that Amazon has spent the last few years just really building up and doubling its logistics network. So it gets to sort of serve the merchants in this way and flex that muscle that it's been building. And of course, Kelly, I started with this. This is all because you're seeing the rise of, not all because, but largely because you're seeing the rise of these Chinese e-commerce platforms. Yeah, I think I think we're going to hear so much more. As we move through retail earnings season, I think we're going to hear a lot more about Timu and Shein this quarter and even going forward. Can I ask you, sort of related to that, what is yeah. it like in San Francisco today? I mean, you've, <laughs> you've seen the city through through so many incarnations the last couple of years. It must be quite the scene. I have. And one thing that I always say is that it wasn't great before the pandemic and it wasn't great after the pandemic. So there wasn't really that much of a change. It did get worse over the pandemic. But, Kelly, I have never seen it as clean as I have over the last few days. Wow. Um, so it really did clean up. And it's leading a lot of folks to wonder, why can't it always be like this? But maybe this will serve as some inspiration 
to the lawmakers and city councilors here who already want to make this city better, but it's just so hard yeah. to push through. Um, but I will say it's it's been really, really nice the last few days. I don't know if they can do kind of pop-up restaurants for this kind of thing, but vacancy-wise, you think we, we've we spoken to real estate investors who, who like to lack of a better word, bottom fish uh, in the San Francisco market. And, and could we could this kind of help serve as an inflection point to bring uh, some lessees back? Well, I think that's already happening. This generative AI revival that you're seeing in the city, you've had OpenAI and Anthropic and some other companies just lease huge amounts of space. So the ideas this week, too, when we're sort of on national display, will encourage maybe more companies that have moved out of San Francisco to come back because you could argue the talent is already coming back. That's why yeah. sort of the biggest and brightest generative AI companies are here. All right. For now, Deirdre, thanks. <laughs> should be a, a fun, maybe festive. Deirdre Bosa, thank you, uh, out in San Francisco for us today. By the way, don't miss an exclusive interview with Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella tomorrow at 1 p.m. Eastern right here on The Exchange. Still to come, shares of this consumer staple name down 17% this year, but up about 7% in November. You can tweet me if you think you know the mystery chart at Kelly CNBC. Bernstein says they can weather the weight loss drugstore, and they reveal the secret ingredient as to why. That's next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of Kraft Heinz are higher today. That was our mystery stock. Bernstein upgrading it to outperform with a $40 price target. That's about 20% upside. The move is partly valuation-based, but they also say that Kraft's protein-forward portfolio gives them a, comp a competitive advantage as weight loss drugs change consumer behavior. Joining us now, Alexia Howard. She's Senior Research Analyst for U.S. Food at Bernstein. Alexia, I love this. Protein power. I, I mean, to what extent is that going to help them? out here? So if you think about Kraft's portfolio here in the US, um, it's very focused on Oscar Mayer lunch meats. You've got the uh, Philadelphia cream cheese. You've also got the cheese portfolio, what remains of it after the divestment. Um, and that's very protein forward. And what we're seeing from the GLP one patients, the Azempic and Wigovi and Manjaro users, is that protein is really important for preserving muscle mass as they lose weight, uh, also good for retaining hair and so on. And so protein forward is actually likely to perform better. And obviously, we've seen the food stock stocks do pretty poorly year to date for various reasons. Uh, and so with Kraft actually being on the right side of the GLP-1 question, uh, that's the reason for the upgrade today. Sure. But if I were thinking protein, I might think a hamburger, you know, hot dogs. And and uh, and what were the other products they have that you mentioned? So they have Philadelphia cream, cream cheese. cheese. Yes, exactly. Now, there's different types of protein, obviously. And one of the things that uh, the GLP-1 patients are saying is that eating foods that are too greasy is sometimes something that's going to not play with them very well, uh, causing gastrointestinal issues. And so anything that's heavily greasy, like a hamburger, you might be able to take a bite or two of it uh, hmm. for enjoyment, but you're probably not going to be able to eat the whole thing. Wait a so minute. It, that, this is a bombshell. If that's the case, then I should be short McDonald's and Burger King and who else? Shake Shack? And be, I mean, you think burgers could be a casualty of the, the, the glip one drug, so to speak? Well, I'm not a restaurant analyst, but certainly what we're hearing is that greasy foods are something that you can eat them, but you just mustn't eat them in excess. Interesting. Who else in this? So Kraft in particular jumps out to you. Um, and again, they've, they've spun out a lot of the more snacky stuff. What about the rest of your coverage space? Who else is up there is maybe hanging in there better? And, and who do you think is more at risk? Sure. So um, Simply Good Foods is a company that produces a lot of 
protein treats, protein bars, protein shakes particularly. And the protein shakes market actually seems to be doing pretty well out of this. So I definitely put that in the winners category with respect to GLP-1s. Um, I think the other at the other end of the spectrum, we are a bit concerned about the confectionery category. And what a lot of the GLP-1 patients are saying is, you know what, I, I used to crave a lot of junk food and a lot of chocolate and confectionery. And frankly, that craving on these drugs has kind of dropped away. So I might not have lost my sweet tooth completely. So instead of a whole chocolate bar fairly frequently, I might just be having a piece of it a few times a week. So it's very, it's going to play out very differently, I think, across the space. Well, and they very timely showed that chart of Hershey. I'm thinking of companies like Hershey or Mondelez or I think Kelanova is the snacks uh, division there. Do you think it could get to the point, Alexia, that they need to think acquisitive, you know, and, and diversifying their business model to maybe include some more protein? I don't know if they're smaller players, maybe newer players on the market. Um, is that a route you would recommend they go? Absolutely. Um, so I, I, we've already been talking about how now now the GLP-1 impact is going to phase in pretty slowly over the next five to 10 years. It's not as though everybody's going to be on them tomorrow. But as that pressure comes through the sector or as that disruption comes through the space, absolutely looking for protein forward, smaller companies. I've actually, um, been, I've actually been recommending Simply Good Foods because it's a protein forward company is something that might become an acquisition target over time. Yeah. And when, for those who are kind of skeptical of this whole argument and just think it's it's all overblown, it's all overhyped, and there's no way it can have that big of an impact, what would you say? So I'd say overall for packaged food or for packaged food broadly or for eating broadly, that's about right. I mean, at the moment, we've got 1% of U.S. adults on this. Maybe it ramps up to 10% of U.S. adults, which would be a third, a full third of the people that are obese in the U.S. today. That's a lot. So if we went to 10% to of the uh, U.S. adult population, people rec report reducing their calorie intake by 25% 25, 25 or so while they're on these drugs and if they manage to keep the weight off uh, beyond that. So that's only 10% times 25%, which is a 2.5% impact. Uh, and that's if that scales in over a five-year period, we're only talking about a half a percent problem for volumes. So I don't think it's an issue for food overall, which is one of the reasons I'm upgrading craft. But I do think that there are going to be pockets where there's bigger concerns. As I say, the junk food area is one of the areas where yeah. I think the cravings go away. That's fascinating. Alexia, thank you so much for joining us today to explain it. We appreciate it. Sure. Joining me from Bernstein makes me look at the uh, the shopping uh, market in a whole different way. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. Extra, give it to you. How about that? That's a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Go, give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com.